One Percenters, welcome back to another episode of the One Percent Podcast, where we bring on guests to optimize your mind and body. Hope you all have had a great start to the week, and let me tell you, it's about to get even better. This week on the podcast, we have the creator of Wild Fit, a revolutionary approach to see nutrition and diet not as a one-size-fits-all approach, but actually as a what-is-best-for-your-body-personally approach. And Eric didn't stop there. He kept getting 1% better, improving on what he'd already been great at. He has went on to start multiple companies, speaking over 20 countries, and he is here to set up a blueprint of how to help you build your extraordinary life. On this episode, we dive deep into all of that and much, much more. Trust me, if you're interested in figuring out what foods work best for your body, and maximizing your life to live an extraordinary life, you will absolutely enjoy this podcast. Buckle up, because here we go. Get ready to be blown away and totally optimized. So buckle up, because here we go. Well, if you wanted to ever do some NBA team stuff, do you do, do, you do uh, professional teams? 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 I really haven't. I, I, you know what happened in my case is I, I went into entrepreneurship myself. You know, I, I kind of left that space and went right into business and you know, did all kinds of stuff in the business space. And then you know, really what got me back over here was really truly randomly about six years ago, I got this phone call and a buddy of mine was a speaker and he had passed away and he was scheduled to speak at one of Tony Robbins events. And they, they needed a they needed a lot, like they needed a replacement and they didn't have anybody. And no kidding, they called me. I, I hadn't been on stage anywhere for three years. I was running a movie studio. We were working on Avatar, Pirates of the Caribbean, Transformers, like I was doing that stuff. And then all of a sudden they called me and said, could you come teach business? mindset, entrepreneurship, marketing at New Robbins program. <laughs> and honestly, because I thought it was a joke. I really did. I mean, why would they, you know, but then the guy convinced me that it wasn't a joke. And 11 days later, my wife and I were on a, on a plane and off to Fiji we went. And I ended up touring with Tony. You know, I did about a year's worth of events with him at the Business Mastery. Like we went to, uh, we went to you know, Vegas and London and did all these events around the world. And that just, that's where I fell in love and was like, oh, I remember why I like this so much. And so since then, I've really been focused on working with entrepreneurs on their mindset, on their business development, on their building. Uh, on their business building. And then that dragged me into the other areas like speaking and, and wild fit and all that stuff, because everything we do is just what our clients ask us for. Yep. So I've done some low grade, you know, like I, I have done some sports stuff, but it's generally been, it's generally been um, amateur level or, you know, hobby based. Cause I happen to be in the city and these guys come to me and go, could, would you work with our karate team? And I'm like, all right, I'll do that. But it's nothing I've <laughs> pursued, you know? Man, but you've done much more. If you're speak, motivational speaking and mindsets throughout the world, that resonates to everything. Like you could absolutely, obviously, go into a sports team and teach them on mindset. Yeah, yeah. Like I, it would, I would have no, I would have no issue no. with it. it. It would be super yeah. fun. There's no question. Well, we'll have to make that happen, man. So, so when you teach mindset, when you go and teach these entrepreneurs a mindset, what are like, what are like your staples for how you develop that that mindset? You know, um, one of the things that I work a lot with is something we call the evolution gap. And uh, the evolution gap is uh, best explained, I suppose, by acknowledging that uh, human evolution used to be happening kind of in lockstep with our um, social evolution. In other words, you know, we evolved to, to relate to our environment and our social environment and so forth. Sure. And about 15-ish thousand years ago, 20,000 years ago, we 
uh, developed agriculture. And when we did that, it changed our social fabric. It, it allowed us to start building civilizations. It allowed us to build cities. And we never really had that before, stored calories and calorie prediction and calories per acre suddenly went from a few hundred to a few hundred thousand. And our whole world changed and our evolution, and it had changed so fast that there was no capacity for us to evolve with that. And so immediately this gap started to open that I call the evolution gap. And that gap has gotten wider and wider and wider. And of course, the pace of change in technology and civilization has only increased. And, and we're still the same apes we were 20 million years ago, more or less. And so when we're working with mindset, that's one of the areas that we focus on the most is recognizing that that's who we are and that most of the stress and worry and difficulty that we have in our life is our inability to cope with that gap. I'll give you an example. Yeah, yeah. There are people today who receive a visa bill and it frightens them. Like they start producing epinephrine. Like they, 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 they start getting adrenalized, their heart starts racing. They start experiencing the same type of, of stress that they might've experienced 100,000 years ago when they noticed a leopard was coming, right? Oh, nice. But, but, but the reason that we do that is that we live in such a safe and secure environment and yet we have these bodies that come from this unbelievably dangerous environment that we're miscalibrated. And that's where a lot of our mindset mess ups come from. Wow, that's really interesting. So that's kind of how you've um, transformed how getting into WildFit as well through understanding that the, the gap from where we are to where we are now is very, very similar. It's just obviously in a different basis. So. Uh, when you, when you help people find their breakthrough, like what are the, what are the specifics that you see? And when you're going on stage and you're speaking and you see people getting just motivated and juiced up, knowing that they are changing their lives, are they finding a breakthrough in feeling, feeling comfortable in the uncomfortable? Are they finding breakthrough in realizing they have it all within themselves and you're letting it out of them? What is, what's the, what, what's the ways that you show these entrepreneurs and, and you do a fabulous job of it, man, but what's the way that you, you basically, you call it the emancipation of the entrepreneur. How do you get the most out of each individual? Um, you know, I, in a weird way, the answer to your question is yes, all of those things, right? You know, yeah, they, yeah. and it's, it's very case by case. Um, very often, entrepreneurs are trapped by emotional addictions. Um, I, I'm sure you see this in sports as well, but... I'm certain of it. And, and, and I'll give you an example, just from my personal life. When, when I started my first business, I was the one who set up the first computers because, well, it was me. And then I had employees and I set up the next computers and then I had more employees and I had to build a network. Now, I was uh, at 15 years old, I was homeless, living in Edmonton, Alberta in the midwinter. And if oh you're homeless gosh. in the midwinter in Edmonton, Alberta, you have like no choice but to find a solution because otherwise you're going to die. You know, it's minus 30 outside. And yeah. so I negotiated a deal with a local video game. Uh, you know, I, I think you're a little younger than me, but there was a time when we had to walk into a building and put, a, put money in a machine to play video games, right? And so no, I remember those days too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. So anyway, I negotiated a deal with the owner of the place. I walked up to him and I go, you look really tired. And he's like, I am. And I go, well, I think I have a solution. And he goes, what? And I go, look, I'll come and open the place for you in the morning and do the first three, four hours. I'll close the place for you at night so you can go home and be with your family. You don't even have to pay me. I'll work for free. What's the deal? And he goes, I said, all you got to do is let me sleep on this couch at night inside the arcade. Amazing. He wow. was okay with violating all the child standards laws and, <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he cut the deal. 
And the reason I mentioned this is that it meant that for the next whatever months that I lived like this, I was like, I didn't sleep. I just played games all the time. And I became really clear about how video games worked and how computers thought. So I've, I've been unnaturally good at them for most of my life. So in my company, guess who fixes the computers? Yep. But then what happened was, is that the company got to a point where I didn't have time for that anymore. And so I hired an IT manager to manage the network and manage the computers and all that kind of stuff. But still what would happen is I'd be walking into the office and somebody would go, oh, hey, Eric, uh, the computer here's busted. It just won't work. I'll bet you can't fix it. And I'd be like, all right, I'll come over. I'll take a look and I'd fix it. And I'd feel good that I did something they thought I couldn't do, right? I was satisfying my ego. I was satisfying my need for a, you know, a sense of importance in the world. And, and I noticed this one day I walk in and the same thing, sales guy, sales guy, you, I bet you can't fix it this time. And I walk over and I look at his computer and I click a few things and I find what was wrong and click boom and the computer's fixed. And half the people in the room are like, yeah. And the other half are like, oh. And that's when I realized <laughs> the whole sales room was taking bets. Like it had become a thing. And so I walked away feeling proud and I suddenly thought, wow, what an empty way to feed my ego. What an, a ridiculous way. I am paying this guy over here $50,000 a year to be my IT manager. He will never get better at it as long as I keep fixing the machines and I'm fixing them because I get myself some little emotional juice from it. Mm -hmm. And so I had to rewire myself to get that sense of importance, that sense of significance another way. And, 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 and about a week later, I was really working on it. Like, what is it about my life that I'm, what, where am I feeling empty that I'm trying to top up with this shallow thing? And so I walked in and one of the sales guy goes, hey, Eric, I bet you can't fix my computer. And I turn around, and I go, you and I both know that I can fix it. <laughs> Call the IT manager. And then I walked <laughs> off to my office and I was like, that is something to be proud of. I didn't say it out of arrogance. I said it out of, hey, dudes, we have an IT manager. Call him. And then in my office, I'm sitting there going, do I really have a company big enough that I have a full-time IT manager? That's where I could get my importance from, maybe. That's amazing. And so that, so that on the journey. So let's, let's even backpedal a little bit. So you're homeless in, in Canada in the middle of the winter, just freezing like crazy. You make this, this mindset shift that you're going to do whatever it takes to get to where you want. So you have that drive and you have that purpose inside of you. So leading into that, is that what goes into create, uh, create wild fit in your next venture of I mean, you know, the journey? And it seems like you've always been on a life journey. And I'm, I'm looking at you and I see these pictures of lions and everything in, in your background. Like, it just looks like you have an, uh, an unbreakable mindset that you are going to, you are going to do whatever you want to do. You're going to live the life you want. I think we had a temporary uh, glitch there oh. in, the, in, the, in the connection, but oh, David, there's a bit of a clue in one of your earlier questions and it kind of relates to what you're saying. Um, the clue, you said something about, is it about becoming comfortable with the uncomfortable, which is kind of a cliched thing these days. Everybody on Instagram says it, you gotta, you know, right, right, right. uncomfortable. But the fact of the matter is if you want life to be easy, then do the hard stuff. I mean, that's just, that's how it is. I, I said to a friend of mine the other day, imagine that you could start life all over again at 40. It was like a game and you could pick one of two characters, two 40 year olds, I, identical in every way, except for one thing. The one 40 year old had a pretty tough upbringing and the other one had a really easy upbringing. Which one would you pick? You'd take the one with the tough upbringing, man. 
that's the one that's got character and skills and what have Absolutely. you. So, yeah. so I feel if you want life to get easier, do the hard stuff. And so here's a great example. And this only even dawned on me about six months ago. David, think about this. 15 years old, pretty sharp, robust, used to camping, you know, like I, I'm, I'm okay with all that stuff. Homeless. What if it had been summertime? I think if it had been summertime, I would have headed down to the high level park where I know that there's a bunch of really cool places where I could have camped out. Uh, I, there are park benches, there, there's trees, there's shelter. There's even, um, I, there's even uh, bathrooms and stuff like that where I know I could get access. Like if it had been summertime, I probably would have headed there, right? That would have been the path of least resistance. I would have slept there one or two nights and maybe a third night. And then by the end of the fourth night, I would have started looking like a homeless kid. And then by the end of the fifth night, I would have needed to start thinking about food in a pretty big way. And then I'd have been begging on the street. And then within a week, I would have been a properly homeless child because my conditions yeah. weren't hard enough on me. But instead, it was January and it was minus 30 bloody outside. There's no way I could go sleep on a bloody park bench. I had to find a solution. I had no choice. It was that or hypothermically die on a bench. So <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that when things are tough, I, I just, my view is, is that when they're tough, it's because we're meant to get tougher. And, and, and when they're easy, that's when we should be careful. You know, when you're really being careful and you're walking along, you don't tend to trip. When you're taking it too easily, that's when you trip and fall. If it had been summertime, I would have been like laid back about the whole thing. I would have figured it out slowly. I had no choice. And I think that sometimes that's where the breakthrough comes from, that that, that we face that difficult stuff. And, and that, that is what happened to me with, with, with food, with WildFit, with all that stuff. I, you know, I went through this thing of just being sick all the time. Thank God. You see, because you know what the trouble for a lot of people is they don't get sick. They kind of get the yes. flu once or twice a year and, and they slowly pack right. on a little bit of pounds here or there and their blood sugar goes a little off here or there and it's not <laughs> that big a deal. But one out of three people in America will die of cancer. One out of three people will die of heart disease and almost 90% of the other one out of three will die of a diabetic related disease. These, none of those diseases were in the top 10 killers of humans 100 years ago. Now they're, now they're killing everybody and they're killing everybody really slowly. But I was being killed fast. Like I was 19, 20 years old, 35 pounds overweight. I had terrible cystic acne, uh, sinus infections that meant that I hadn't breathed through my own nose in years. Gut, in, uh, uh, you know, gut cramps that were so terrible that when they struck me, I couldn't walk. God. I had throat infections so bad that when the throat specialist looked down my throat, he, he went pale. He's like, you have to have those removed. 30 days later, I'm 35 pounds lower in weight. Every infection I've got is gone. The inflammation is gone. I get off a plane to visit my mother. I come down the, you know, I come down the steps to where the greeting area is. I've got my girlfriend at the time with me. And my mom looks straight at me, but doesn't see me. But then she sees my girlfriend who had bright red hair. She would tell you strawberry blonde, but it was, it was red. <laughs> anyway, I do that every now and again, hoping she's watching one of these. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. <laughs> In any event, uh, so, so my, but my mom saw her because she was so recognizable. And then my mom did the double take and looked back at me. And that's when she saw that it was me. My face had changed so dramatically because I had changed my relationship with food that she didn't even recognize me. No kidding. The other day I made some comment on Facebook about you know some of the changes I made back in 1991. And my mom immediately on Twitter, she replied, she goes, 
I remember the day seeing your face, the chiseled expression, the, the, the complete change of your, it was like, she remembers it like it was yesterday. And again, though, God. David, like I wouldn't have made that change if I wasn't suffering. You, it, exactly. So almost suffering was a blessing, but a lot of people see suffering as a woe is me situation, but you turn it as like something that's going to happen to you is only going to make you stronger. And that's, I mean, that's huge credit to the, the mental discipline and the mindset that you have and, and being able to do so. So you're talking about having this, I mean, obviously a huge, huge transformation in your life, but what did you realize it? Like, how did you go from that, that point to, uh, to making that change, literally like making change is, is the hardest thing for people to do in life. But once they do it and once they realize how much uh, improvement it's going to give to their own lives, it's, it's, it's a no brainer. How did you make that switch? How did you deal with the, the food psychology and, and figure out like, this is what's going to make me live a healthy, happy life. And now, now since I've done it, since I've been through it all, now I can go share it with everybody else. It sort of happened in stages. I think part of it is what I just mentioned is that I was suffering enough that I was motivated. And, you know, one of the things that I do when I work with clients is I work very hard to move their rock bottom line. Um, you know, a lot of times people have to hit rock bottom in order to change, right? They have to hit rock bottom to quit drinking. They got to hit rock bottom to change their diet. They got to hit rock bottom to quit their job and start a business. So the trouble is, is that rock bottom can be pretty damn far. You know, like, and, and a lot of times it's really hard to climb back up from a really deep rock bottom. So one of the exercises I think that's really valuable to do with clients is move their rock bottom line. I, I'll give you an example. Um, I have friends that they're, well, how about just even in my own life? Up until I was about 25 years old, my financial rock bottom line was about minus 100,000. If I got to minus 100,000, it freaked me out to no end. So I surfed this credit, like I had like 60 grand in debt, 70 grand in debt. And, and I surfed that as long as I didn't drop below one. I mean, if I hit below minus 100, that would be <laughs> rock bottom. Right. And then one day I went through a process and it moved rock bottom to zero. It just moved it to zero to just being in a break even existence. And that year I worked so hard and I took the right advice and I, I used all kinds of cool you know, tools, uh, you know, psychological tools and, and financial tools. And bam, a year later, I was completely debt-free, completely debt-free. Wow. And I have never borrowed money since, except for major purchases like houses, like not even for cars. I like, I right. just, I, my rock bottom is zero. So the minute I've, anytime I've approached zero, I was like, ah, that's my rock. But then I moved the rock bottom up to the next level. And, and you know, that's seven figures, man. If I got below seven figures, I can't sleep. Now I'm kidding. <laughs> of course, it's not that I can't sleep. It's just, that's one of the tools is to move what rock bottom is because at the end of the day, it's your choice what rock bottom is. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then what happened to me with, with food is I was at rock bottom the day my doctor told me he was going to cut my tonsils out. I was like, I'm going to go under general surgery, general anesthetic. Bear something in mind. If a little child has their tonsils out, it's not that big a deal. I mean, I don't agree with it, but as a surgery right. goes, it's not that big a deal. But for an adult post-puberty, your tonsils are integrated into your throat. So it's actually a really big deal. It's a major surgery. And, and if you think about it, the reason they're cutting them out is because they're hurting you, but they're not dealing with the cause, right? They're not dealing with what's making them hurt you. You know, David, about two, three years ago, a Facebook friend of mine that I didn't know very well, but knew, posted that he was going to go and get his tonsils out. Same reasons as me. And I wrote to him and I said, please don't. I said, give me 15 minutes on the phone and let's talk about this because you, you don't need to have them out. 
God, evolution, the universe, whatever you believe, put them there for a reason. And let's talk about why they're irritated. And for one reason or another, he chose to go with his doctor, probably because of the clipboard stethoscope and the degree hanging on the wall. Those are very overwhelming pieces of evidence know, and knowledge. Never mind the fact that that doctor had never once, not in all the six years of medical school that he had, studied food for even five minutes. Nonetheless, um, <laughs> I was uh, shocked to find about a week later that he died temporarily on the operating table. They brought him back, but it was oh bad. God. And then what was really crazy is about a year later, I was invited to do a talk on Necker Island, Richard Branson's place. And okay. I'm, I'm standing actually on Mosquito. I'm standing in, in the room, you know, doing a presentation for not many, a private event. And I share that story. And this guy comes up to me and he raised his hand. He goes, it was me. Oh my goodness. And then we got talking about it and what have you. It was him. And, and so, you know, in my case, I, I just immediately, when they told me it was time to have my tonsils out, I'm like, I don't want that. And I started asking the right questions. And that's half the battle, right? Is asking the right questions. And so for me, the first thing is I started asking questions about the nature of food. One of the questions I asked my doctor was how, how much he knew about food. You know, like yeah, I, I actually yeah. asked, how, how long did, you, did yeah. you go to medical school for? And he's six years. And, and I said, and, 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 you know, how much, how much of that time was, was on food? And, and he said, none, like none. And, and <laughs> I, 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 I'm a 21 year old kid. Like I, I can't relate to that. I, I, I really can't. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean none? Like what, what exactly do you mean by none? He goes, no, like, like, like none. I mean, you know, we did talk about food relative to fasting before surgery because it's inconvenient when people vomit when they're intubated. Like so, and, and, and David, I have asked doctors this question in probably 20 countries around the world as I've been on this incredible journey. And every now and again, every now and again, a doctor will say a few hours and once a doctor said six months, guess what? Elective. It was elective. It was not required for the degree. And so that's when I woke up. That's the moment I was like, holy crap, I'm in a plane and nobody's flying the damn thing. Like, who am I supposed to trust about this food thing if I can't talk to the doctor about it? And, and that's, what, that's what got me into the research space. That's what got me digging into everything I could. And then the, the next stage, because you see, all that did was help me answer some basic questions about nutrition, like what humans probably should be eating more of and what humans should be eating less of, how people should live. What I really couldn't understand, once I unlocked it all, I transformed my own life, my own body, I was powerful, I felt good. And then my business clients would come to me and go, where do you get all this energy from? You don't do jet lag, you're flying all over the place, what's going on? And, um, and then I said, uh, yeah, I'll teach you. And I would teach them. I'd do a little workshop and I'd teach them the principles. And then six months later, I'd see them and they would be no different. And that's when I, I got to a new place. And that new place was what makes people eat things they know they shouldn't and what stops people from eating the stuff they know they should. And I started digging deep into food. And I, 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 I kind of Think of myself as a food psychologist. What I had to do is dive right in and understand why people, you can say to people, look, eat this and don't eat that. And 20 minutes later, they're not eating this and they are eating that. Like they, they you know, December 31st, I'm never going to drink again and I'm going to eat better. <laughs> January 1st by two o'clock in the afternoon, they're drinking another beer and sucking down a pizza. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't have beer and pizza. What I'm saying is they should be in control of the decision and most people are not. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that's something 
I mean, I haven't really even heard before, really, the food psychology. Like people, the difference between knowing and doing is so drastic. But how do you take, how, how do you take people and teach them, like, how do, you, how do you teach them the food psychology? How do you teach them, like, what you shouldn't be eating, the eating decisions, how to be in control? There's a power, like, I'm like you, man. I have a ton of energy. I eat super healthy. Like, I understand that the eating psychology of my own, my own self. And I get the same questions, like, how do you not get jet lag traveling all over and, and how do you do what you do with, with so much energy? But it's like, how do you, it, it's the hard part to just show and then to teach and then to actually have them apply. So being in control, as we know, is being in control of, of what we eat and what we put into our body, how we fuel, fuel our bodies is, is super powerful. But for 99% of the population, it's, it's nearly impossible. Yeah, how do you divorce them? How did that mindset? It, it, it is nearly impossible. And it actually, a lot of it comes down to the evolution gap that we were talking about before. You see, we have instincts that are not matched with our current environment. Um, in, in social anthropology, there's a measurement and it's called calories per acre. So if you go and visit, say, the Maasai of East Africa and you were to measure their calories per acre, it's quite high. You, you'd be in the hundreds of thousands of calories per acre because because they, they're, they're pastoralists, they, they carry, mm -hmm. they, they, they have cattle and they have goats, so they carry calories per acre with them. If you were to go and visit the, uh, the Datoga people or any of the other tribal people in those areas that farm, you would now be talking to people that have millions of calories per acre. But if you were to go and visit, say, the Hadza Bushmen in, in Tanzania or the Kung Bushmen in Namibia or Botswana, you would be meeting people that have access only to hundreds of calories per acre. Now, what that really ultimately means is that there's a different workload that's required. Look, you're in California. You literally live with billions upon billions of calories per acre. You could, you could right now with the power of your credit card and an app on your phone, eat for a year and never walk any further than the front door of your house, right? Whereas the Hadza Bushmen, on the other hand, have zero choice but to move a great deal in order to get their minimum calories and minimal, minimum nutrients met. It's just, that's just the reality. And so our instincts are to conserve energy wherever possible because it used to be so important to us to have the energy to get food. So that's why it's hard for a lot of people to motivate themselves to work out because our instincts are conserve energy. And our other instinct is eat food when it's available because you don't know if it'll be <laughs> yeah. available tomorrow. And so yeah. the vast majority of people are overeating. Then we have some other evolution gap problems. Like one is we have an unbelievably strong and powerful craving for sweet things. Well, not everybody is subjected to this. Some people have it more than others, but at an instinct level, we crave sweet because in nature, the only way really to get sweet was fruit and honey. That, that was about it really. But those things were incredibly rare and seasonal. So when they came out, if you didn't get your fair share, you might not survive the winter. You had to get it. And so we have a powerful craving for it. But fast forward to today, the food manufacturers know this. Go to the checkout counter of any grocery store, even, even the exalted Whole Foods, and you'll find that there's candies, sugar, garbage. And what color are they? Fruit colors. Mm -hmm. They're trying to speak directly to our instincts. And so what we have to do with our clients is get them to recognize the difference between the food industry being in control of their food decisions and them being conscious of their food decisions. That's a big deal. That's a, that's a huge deal. So on a personal level, how, how, do, you, how do you cut cravings? Like how do, you, how do you divorce that mindset from having a craving? 
Well, one, one is not the best answer, but one of the issues is that some cravings are simply a matter of um, the current state of your gut biome. So for okay. example, if somebody's been eating a lot of, uh, you know, say like processed carbs, then they've changed the makeup of their gut biome. They're probably starting to breed a bunch of candida. And so now their nervous system is going to keep asking for that food, therefore a craving. And so in that case, the only way to really break the craving, the physical craving, is to stop doing it for long enough that the gut biome begins to repair and stops making the request, right? So that's right. one of the difficulties is that it's like a conveyor belt. You go and you eat the junk the one day and the very next day you want some more. And you go and eat your junk that day and now the next day you want some more and pretty soon you don't have any freedom. It's not your choice anymore. So one of the things to do is to recognize that it is important to take seasonal breaks. Is, is, yeah, eat this way for a while, but you've you got to stop and take a break from it to give your gut biome a chance to not, not grow too heavily in one direction. But then the other side of it is, is really just to um, teach people how to create a sense of consciousness about their decisions. Here's nice. one way that I do it when I've got a big group. Like say I'm doing a seminar and I've got a thousand people in the room. What I'll do is this. I'll go, okay, everybody. I want you to go, you know, I want you to go to a time in your life when you still would have been happy to eat pizza and ice cream and stuff like that. Many of them still do. And I go, okay, now I want you to imagine that we're at a big party and somebody's just announced that we're all going to order a bunch of pizza and ice cream and, and, and that kind of stuff. And we're about to order it. So I want everybody to make the sound that represents the emotional feeling they have when I announce that we're ordering a bunch of ice cream and Coke and pizza and stuff. And I go, one, two, three. And of course, a thousand people are going, yeah, wow. <laughs> you know, they're all excited, right? Because that's what it feels like inside when somebody goes, we're ordering a pizza. And then I go, all right, now I want you to imagine you've eaten the pizza and the ice cream and the Coca-Cola and everything else. And it's about an hour later. When I count to three, I want everybody to make the sound that represents the way you feel now. And of course, now the sound is, and in that moment, perhaps for the first time in their life, they've connected the events consciously. And they will never be able to order pizza again without being aware that they're going to hurt themselves. And so one of the things that we do is introduce our clients to something we call the food timeline, which is a, an incredibly conscious approach to your emotional states before you make the decision to eat, after you make the decision to eat, as you put the first bite in your mouth, as you put the second bite in your mouth, how do you feel when you finish it? How do you feel half an hour later? How do you feel the next morning? And when you, instead of treating those things as individual events in time, and you see them as a parenthetical experience, suddenly you're like, oh, oh, this equals that. And then all of a sudden the craving isn't as strong anymore. Eric, that's amazing. That literally gives some of the power of have, uh have a positive relationship with food that's that's i've never heard that said before but like that's that's unbelievable like how are you going to feel after you make the choice how do you feel the day after you do it wow great man it, yeah and I, it up I, on I, an even like, i would say i've i've heard i've seen that kind of thing in you know people talking about that in sort of like you know weight loss clubs and stuff like that but there's a very big difference between simply blindly asking that question and finding a Thank way you. to absolutely link the yes. craving yeah. with the consequence and the feeling with the kind like I'll give you another one and I and I like okay here's here's a fascinating one do you have are there do you have any crutch foods that you enjoy that you know aren't so functional or you may or may not man I'm magic spoon I'm really into magic spoon right now that's kind of my craving I don't even know what it is so the magic spoon cereal the healthy cereal you got to get on it 
All right. All right. Well, let's not do that. If it's healthy and you're happy with it, keep it. But okay. I'll put it another way. Was there ever a time when you really liked ice cream? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so think about the young version of you. And, 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 and so suddenly we're like, hey, David, we're going to go get an ice cream. And so when do you start feeling good? Like, let's say you were feeling a little low, a little tired and a little whatever. And then I go, David, we're going to go get an ice cream. When do you start feeling good? Damn, I mean, right when I hear that, like I'm already envisioning what that ice cream is going to look like. That's right. You start to feel good with the permission to rebel, the permission to have something bad, the permission to have something yummy, the permission to have something yeah. full of sugar. Yeah. You actually start to feel good with the decision. Now, why that's hypnotic, why that's powerful, why it's dangerous is that now you start feeling good. What does feeling good mean? It means you're producing dopamine and serotonin and feel good chemicals in your body. So now you start producing all these feel good chemicals in your body. Then you smell and taste the ice cream while you're feeling good. The ice cream never made you feel good. The substance never made you feel good. The permission did, but then you link the feeling good with the taste, feeling good with the cold, feeling good with the taste, feeling good with the cold. And so two days later you go, Oh, you know, I was feeling a bit down the other day, but you know what? I had an ice cream and I felt great. (laughs) <laughs> and so that's yeah. another one of the consciousness timelines that we have to introduce to people is that it's actually not the food that makes them feel better. It's sometimes the permission to eat something forbidden or the permission to eat something super high calorie, even though it's nutritionally devoid. And see, it's, it's, that's so great. I mean, that's, it's all mindset. It's all our perspective on it. And you do a, a great job of exemplifying what that is in food, what that is in mindset and business and, Let's just take it up for a higher level for, for high-performing athletes on the 1% of sure. podcast for high-performing NBA athletes. So let's say I'm giving you an, an, an NBA player and, and they're eating – like this is a challenge. So I'm giving you this as a challenge of, of what I have to deal with a lot of is these guys have 40-inch verticals. They have 6% body fat, and, and they're eating junk. Like they're eating uh, fast food. They're eating Skittles. Like how, how do you – how do you make that shift? I mean, I, I kind of know as, as you've been talking about it, about how do you make that shift for a high-performing athlete to show somebody who's, who's already functioning at a high level that they can be even better, like taking that extra percent step up? It's a, it is a tough question. Um, I, a, a very good friend of mine has been introducing WildFit to some of the top golfers and tennis players in the world. I can't divulge any Perfect. names. It's all, you know, but, oh, and, and it's really been interesting because now I know a little bit about some of their eating patterns, right? And I know, for example, one of the, you know, let's say top, uh, one of the top 10 tennis players in the world, I know he's unbelievably diligent about his food. And yet one of the others is like, he'll go have a big bowl of ice cream after, after playing the game. Like it, it is, yeah. it, it's just a different, you know, for, and, and, and obviously psychologically what's happened with him is, oh, when he was training, when he was a kid, probably there was ice cream as a reward for training really hard. So he just gets anchored into that and wants to keep doing it. So the question is how much better player could he be if his health was optimized, if his nutrition was optimized, how many less injuries would he have? And so in any time that you're looking to influence somebody, I kind of feel like you have to influence them where they live. You have to influence them with what worries them. So if I'm talking to a professional athlete, um, in fact, one of the top uh, polo players in the world, like, I think he was number three or four last year, is an avid WildFit um, client. And, and a big one of the reasons is, is that he, um, I think it has to do with injury reduction. You see, one of the challenges we have sure. these days is that food has to be looked at. There's more to it than this, but, but let's say there are two important aspects of food. There's a few more, but two main ones. One is energy, and the other one is non-energy nutrients, right? Like, People often think of food as food, but there's energy and there's non-energy nutrients. So 
you know, like a Coca-Cola is full of the energy, but has no non-energy nutrients in it. There, you, it. It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't give you building blocks, right? Now, one of the problems is, is that we've had this whole diet, this whole uh, like calorie myth been going on. So many people that are trying to optimize their health and optimize their weight and their body fat percentages and stuff are focusing on the net calorie intake versus net calorie spend, which is bullshit. Like it, it, it's, mm -hmm. it, it's only in the very basic sense true, but it really isn't. And so one of the things that happens is now you have somebody who's massively overfed high energy food, but starving to death nutritionally. And then you start to wonder why they're having uh, like um, cartilage degradation or they're, or they're getting their muscles pulled too often or they're feeling foggy in the afternoons or what have you. They have energy, but they don't have the healthy fats, minerals, the, the right vitamins because they're overfed and undernourished. And so if I'm you know, talking to somebody in, in a peak physical world like that, like a, I've, I've worked with some endurance runners, I've worked with some martial artists and, and some of the others you mentioned, uh, when trying to influence them, what I'd be looking at is what is most important to them. And that's how you'd have to get them over. Like, so Good if one of them is like, uh, you know, number two or three in the world and what they do, what I'd be trying to say to them, isn't it possible? Isn't it possible that if we got your nutrition optimal, isn't it possible that that could be the edge that would move you to number one? Because if they're number two, I guaranteed they want to get to number one. You're number 10, ah, number one, maybe. You're number two, you want number one. And, and you know, equally, if I'm working with another athlete and I've done the research and I'm going, hey, look, this person's really injury prone. Let's take a look at what kind of injuries are happening there and what might be, you know, what might be going into that. And, and you know, again, I don't want to, I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I can prescribe exactly what food is going to fix which injury. But here's what I do know. I don't care what disease or injury you have. Being well hydrated and well nourished and not having so much toxin in you will help you heal it. Right. So, you know, we don't have to yeah. be a doctor to do that baseline level of efficiency yeah. and, and peak performance, in my opinion. Eric, we need to get you with every NBA team. That just, hmm. I mean, it, it would absolutely help them because, I mean, obviously, you know, I've been to, um, I've been to, I've been to two NBA games in my life and um, yeah. I'm Canadian. So it's not as big a deal for us there. Are right? you a Raptors fan? Well, I, you know, I, I, I was in Vancouver. We had the Grizzlies. They were gone. Nah, okay, but I, okay. I got to tell you, my two NBA games, I, I, I don't know if I can ever go again because here's, here's the last NBA game I went. A friend of mine works at the Knicks, and I, I just mm -hmm. put on Twitter from the Philippines, incidentally. I don't know why your Skype thing says Philippines. I don't know if you're there. Where are you? You're in L.A. Your Skype no, 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 thing no, no, says no, you're no, in the I, Philippines. I, it did because I used to travel all over the place. And I think I when know. I set up Skype, I was in the Philippines at the time. I don't know. <laughs> Still thinks whatever. you're there. It looks cool in though, any, right? Yeah. In any event, I, I posted on Facebook, I'm landing in New York last minute. And this buddy of mine goes, if you can get to the gardens by 6.30, you're, yeah, I got you a ticket at the game. So I walk in, it's courtside. I'm sitting over here. Gary Vaynerchuk's over here beside me. And we're like, you know, and, and I, I'm, I got to meet a bunch of the players. That was one NBA experience I've had. And my other <laughs> one was even better because a very good friend of mine, Kathy Lee Crosby, was the original Wonder Woman. And on That's Incredible and stuff. And yeah. years ago, she was kind of going through a, like wanting to get back out into public a little after some personal setback stuff. And I was working with her on it. And, uh, you know, and, and, and so one day I said, here's the next challenge. You and I have to go to a major sporting event where there's going to be thousands of people around you. And she's like, oh, my God. And I go, yep, it can be hockey, baseball, basketball. I don't care what it is. You can pick the sporting event. You arrange the tickets. We're going. So I show up in L.A. And I go, so where are we going? And she goes, we're going to a basketball game. And I go, okay. She goes, I called Jerry and I got the tickets. And I'm like, who's Jerry? Jerry Buss. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. And so I'm like, we're going to a game? What, what game is it? She goes, I don't know. I think it's the Celtics against the Lakers. And it's like game six of – 
in, in the playoffs. And I'm like, I don't know enough about basketball to realize how lucky I am this day. So we get there, yeah. we go to the stadium and we get these bracelets, right? No, we're not normal people. We don't have a ticket. We have bracelets. And David, these bracelets allowed us to walk anywhere in the stadium we wanted, including the locker room, like literally anywhere. We so I'm walking along and, 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 and all of a sudden, Kathy Lee gets all excited. She goes, Charles, Charles. We're sitting having a chat with Charles Barkley. We got to walk down courtside and say hi to Jack Nicholson. <laughs> walked into the kind of VIP lunch area and I walked around the corner and I walked into this guy. We just we hit each other. And I got to tell you, I don't think he felt a thing, but it hurt me to the core. This guy was a wall of muscle. It was David Beckham. <laughs> so those are my two NBA experiences. I, we got to top it somehow. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, uh, I was going to say when you come out to LA, we can go to a game, but uh, I don't think you can, you, I don't think you can possibly <laughs> top that. I mean, my uncle was a coach for the Raptors. So I was at the, at the game six NBA finals championship where they won it and got to go back and celebrate and pop champagne with them. So oh, maybe so if cool. you were there with me, then that could have been on par, but wow. Mm. Yeah. All right. You've got me beat on NBA. Dude, you're amazing. Like you are a wealth of knowledge in so many areas. And what I love about you even more so is how passionate you are. Like just, just watching your, expressions and how, how passionate you get about talking about changing people's lives is amazing to me. It's so I, like, I could talk to you all day about that. And ho hopefully <laughs> we'll get to talk more about it sometime when you come out here and I'll just pick your brain even more, but um, I want to throw you on the rapid fire hot seat. Now while we Let's wind do down, I got to know what your favorite mindset quotes are. Is there anything that you have as a mantra, something you live by, maybe the thing you slap on your refrigerator? What's your favorite? Tough you know, I, I'm, I, I, I have a number, um, you know, but I think if we really are talking about, um, if we're really talking about like one that guides my life in the, in the biggest way, it, it's, it's a Viktor Frankl quote, and I don't have it word for word for you. If, if I can find it here, I'll, I'll give it to you word for word. But basically the idea of the quote is that there's a, there is the event and there is the response. And it is that sliver of time between the event and the response that you choose your freedom as a human being. And that to me has been one of the deepest guiding principles of my life. And, uh, and one of the most um, important sets of words ever put together in English. That's, that's beautiful, man. Love it. Okay. What does, what does leaving a legacy mean to you? Not the general sense of what people on a billboard or something, but what does leaving a legacy mean to you? You know, I, it's not something I ever really thought a great deal about. You know, I, I, you know, go put some graffiti on a bridge. It'll be there in 50 years. You know, I, I it was never this thing where I needed to be remembered or something. And, Good. and, um, but you know, I, I guess it changed a little bit, you know, I've got, I've got two children and, um, and to me, that's really the ultimate legacy. You know, I, it really is. Um, my, my, my boy is uh, coming up to 22 years old and he's just wow. a phenomenal kid and so smart, too smart, frankly, because the arguing is getting, you know, like he can win now. And that's just inconvenient. <laughs> it's just inconvenient. And then I've got my little girl, and she's um, you know three years old, and wow. precocious and cute and, and amazing. And and I think from a legacy perspective, I don't know that there's any legacy more important than the legacy you leave in the way you raise those children. That you that you somehow find the balance between keeping them safe but not protecting them so much that they don't become functional. And and um, and 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 so I think about that a lot. And then. I have to admit that what, hap what has happened with WildFit over the last five years has really um, impacted me. Um, it started really as a hobby, honestly. I, 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 a few of my business clients were looking for a little guidance and 
I gave it to them and then they told their friends and they told their friends and you know, no kidding, David, we were doing like a hundred clients a year. It was a $1,500 coaching package. We made no money on it. Like the same exact coaching package in business was $5,000 for the same time investment, but nobody will pay that for their health. So Mm -hmm. we really just did it almost like a, almost like a public service, frankly, you know, we had a hundred clients a year. It was a, you know, and then they started telling their friends about it. And, um, and then one day a friend of mine uh, did the program. His name is Paul Sheely, famous author in America on a number of different topics. And he and his wife did the program. And then he told his clients about it and 200 people signed up in a single day. We didn't even have a website. He called me and said, I'm going to tell my network, you should put up a website. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not a business. And he goes, it is now. And he told his network, 200 people signed up in a day, a hundred people the whole year before 200 people in a day. Then another friend of mine in Vancouver did similar thing, asked me to come and do a talk in front of a couple hundred people, 800 people or so. And bam, 150 people signed up. And we're like, and then, um, I don't know, are you familiar with Mindvalley? Um, For sure, Mind- yeah, Vision, I know Vision, yeah. Yeah, well, Vision did the program. And um, Vision did the program and he took before and after pictures like we recommended all of our clients do. And then he shared his results and his before after pictures with the Mind Valley tribe and no kidding, 1100 people signed up in a week. And Man. suddenly we were global. You know, we've now had 15,000 people in 130 countries do the wild fit program. The Canadian government like summoned me into Ottawa to come and stand on oh. the Senate floor and get a medal from the speaker of the Senate for the work we're doing, improving the quality of people's lives and, and changing, you know, food regulation and what have you. And so now I am thinking about legacy and the legacy that I'm thinking about is massively improving the quality of millions of people's lives by changing their relationship with food and by changing the way food is produced. Man, that's so amazing. Just, I mean, just even stop and think, I'm sure you have, but th- think about 15 years old, homeless in Canada, going to receiving awards from the whole community and whole, all of Canada on, the, on what you're doing and changing people's lives. Dude, that's just, that, like, I'm getting goosebumps over here just thinking about that. that. That's absolutely amazing. And that's just a testimony to the person you are, the passion you have, and the purpose driven that you have. And one of the questions I was going to ask you that I skipped over is like, what drives you? Like, what makes you so motivated? But I think I got that out of you in a lot of different ways. So, man, that's just, it's amazing. Amazing what you're doing. Um, and as we wind up here, how can everybody, how can everybody follow you what you're doing? How can everybody, how can we support you? How can we become part of WildFit? I'd love to, I'd love to promote you to my network. I can't promise I'm going to get you 1100 people on the first day, but I would love to get you out there as much well, as possible. First, I have a proposal for you. Um, if you want to do like, uh, if you and I want to do say like a, a really like powerful sort of masterclass style webinar where we will teach some unbelievably powerful things to everybody totally for free. We'll, we'll do a big webinar if you want and really like teach them some powerful stuff about nutrition and food psychology. And then if that, if that is really attractive to people and they like it, we could see about organizing a challenge for your group. You know, we could get one of our coaches to administer it and it would be for your group. That way your tribe gets to go through it together. So I'm totally up for doing that. In the meantime, anybody can go to getwildfit.com and they can go find out more about the program. We have a really cool two-week reset program that introduces people to the concepts and changes their relationship with food in just two weeks. And then, of course, we have the really effective 90-day program that's made us famous. And that one is, you know, it's fully guaranteed. Can you imagine like a health program that's fully guaranteed? <laughs> like that's no. the proof. Yeah, that's, I know. Sorry. No, no, I, I believe it. It's amazing. Like, why would, like, why wouldn't anybody do it? That's the thing. <laughs> I ask myself that every now and again. 
Um, then also, you know, I, people can certainly find me on the web, my name, ericedmeets.com. And, you know, I'm on Facebook like everybody else, but I do, I manage my own Instagram. So if anybody writes to me directly on Instagram, that's me. And I, and I, I really, I actually quite enjoy the Instagram platform. And so it's at Eric Edmeads and uh, I'm looking forward to meeting some people. Dude, that's amazing. It's amazing. Okay. Last question for you. What does being a one percenter mean to you on the one percenter podcast? What does being a one percenter mean to you? You know, to me, it means looking at life almost like you would play a video game. And what I mean by that is that you're playing a video game and you get to the hard stage and you don't sit there and go, oh, and this part's just so hard. You, you go, yeah, and you buckle in and you get ready and you do it and then you fail and you get frustrated and you do it and you fail and you get frustrated and then you do it and you realize that the favorite part of the game is overcoming the hard part. And like, what if we just did that with our life? When the hardest stuff happens, you're fired. I want a divorce. I want this. You're bankrupt. What if on that day you're able to go, oh, well played. Well played, spiritual development guide. I'm going <laughs> to rock this game. And I believe being a one percenter means that. Gosh, that is so good. That's what I love. Instead of, instead of being in fear of our failures or in fear of, maybe like, like when I'm public speaking, if you feel, about, feel nervous, not good enough it's bring it on let's go you have an awesome mindset man you got to come coach my nba players just on mindset alone everything dude thank you so much thank you so much for coming on here like there's so many more things i would love to talk to you about there's so many things that you're doing Link well, to if, this, if this resonates with your listeners, let's book another podcast. I've done that a lot of times. It's a lot of fun. We get to go deeper. And I will definitely make sure that I uh, get in touch with you next time I'm out on the West Coast. Big time. Thank you for joining me on the One Percenter Podcast. Hopefully you took something away from today that you can implement into your own life. Hope you all have a great week. Thank you for supporting the One Percenter Podcast. Go out there and do something for somebody. Change somebody's life. If you change one life, that is legal in the legacy the rest is gravy on top remember life is a journey enjoy it david nurse one percenter podcast signing off